Welcome to episode 3 of The Show Me. This episode serves as a companion piece to episode 2, and we strongly recommend that if you haven't listened to that episode yet, that you do so now and save this episode for afterwards. Doing so will provide you with an understanding of the orphan trains and their history in Missouri. As for this episode, I sat down with Shirley Andrews and her daughter Beth to discuss the life of Shirley's mother, Irma Craig, an orphan train rider who arrived in Missouri in 1901. Shirley was gracious enough to welcome us into her home and share her family's history, and for that, we cannot express our gratitude enough. So thank you, Shirley, and thank you, Beth, and let's let them tell us about Irma Craig and how she became part of the Show Me. hospital when she was just a couple of months old yes um, was it common for orphan train riders especially those of such a young age to find out who their biological parents were um, some of them did I was told I was very fortunate to be able to find out who mine were how was your mother able to find out who her parents were um, she was told she contacted the New York family and they didn't have her birth certificate but they told her the New York agent, Vital Statistics Agency that could give it to her. So we wrote to, she and I wrote to them and um, asked them for the birth certificate. Well, the birth certificate they furnished didn't have a first name on it, but it said that she was born at Sloan Maternity Hospital and the maternity hospital had only one female baby by the last name of Craig that was born within the month that my mother was born. So they said that that was her birth certificate. And it had her mother and father's name on there and uh, their ages. And uh, they were both U.S. citizens, had not been, they were not uh, immigrants. And it was in 1898 that she was Yes, uh she was born June 25th, 1898, and she was placed there September 5th, 1898. With the U.S. economy being in a depression between 1893 and 1898, I think that had a large factor in her being placed for adoption. That I don't know. I will tell you that she lived in an upper-middle-class part of... of, uh, It was up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, But in later research, just in the last maybe five years, 
we found out a little bit more about her family. And um, her father was um, not in the home two years after she was born. He was not in the home anymore. She was already in the orphanage. Um, she found out that her grandfather and grandmother lived with her, her mother in that big brownstone building. And uh, the father was handicapped. The census form just says bedridden, handicapped, crippled. You know, you yeah. didn't know which, but he was one of those. And he did die the year after my mother was born. Okay. And uh, there was a, uh, the grandmother lived there also. And there was another child besides my mother, a little girl. And she died the year after my mother was born of uh, meningitis. And since the father, her father was not in the home anymore, and uh, the mother was a seamstress and was supporting the father and the, her father and mother and her other little girl, little Ruby. And uh, when she had this other baby, when the father evidently had come home for a visit, <laughs> And she had this other baby. She gave it away. She wasn't able to care for all of them. And uh, in the research that I have done, the uh, the New York Foundling Hospital, they differed from the Children's Aid Society in that the children who rode the orphan trains from the New York Foundling Hospital were placed through the church structure? Yes. Yeah. So your, yeah. Mother, your mother's biological parents were more than likely Catholic? Probably not. Oh, probably not. <laughs> I think it was a good good place for orphans to be yeah. uh, and were treated well. Uh, the father, we don't know what his religion was, but the mother was Jewish. Oh, okay. At, at least her name was Jewish. We don't have any records or way of knowing that she was a practicing Jewish lady, but her, her parents were Jewish. Their name was Steinberg. And uh, we've done some research through DNA and such, and they were Jewish people. Okay. And they placed her in the New York Foundling. The Foundling uh, Hospital would take children of any race, color, creed, or ethnic background. But the day after they came, they were baptized Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one thing that I noticed that the difference between the two organizations there is that with the Children's Aid Society, they put the children on a train and just go pretty much depot to depot and pretty much just have the people fill out the adoption forms that day and then either approve or reject them. Whereas with the uh, New York family, they use their church networks to find homes for the kids before placing them. Right. Uh, my mother was uh, got off the train down in Osage City, Missouri, with a group of another group of, uh, of other orphans that came down there. And that had been done through the parish priest down there. His name was Father Schultz. No, Schmidt, Schmidt, Schmidt. sorry. <laughs> I'm getting her teacher mixed up with it. And um, he had probably got up in front of the pulpit on a Sunday and said, we have an opportunity to help uh, some orphans, homeless orphans from New York City. And uh, you, if you fill out an application with me, I will send it to the sisters there and uh, they will send you a child. They were able to actually say what kind of a child they wanted. If they wanted a little um, blue-eyed blonde child, maybe to 
take the place of a child they had lost. Uh, they could apply for that, or they could apply for a little uh, black-haired, brown-eyed uh, little boy. Maybe they uh, only had girls. Maybe needed a boy to help on the farm. Yeah. Uh, the foundling dealt mostly with little children. They tried to play, keep them until they were about three, and then they placed them out. My mother was not quite three, just a few, couple months less than three when she was placed out. When she came to Osage City in mm -hmm. 1901? Yes. There are at least 31 other orphans who rode the train with your mother. Yes. I remember reading in my research, she had number 32 on her clothing there. Yes, uh-huh. Uh, were all those children brought to mid-Missouri, or was it a series of stops? Or? Um, uh, we know, uh, my mother said that at least 21 that she knew of were in this area. But um, when the train came through St. Louis, there were 40, about 45 children on it. So they placed some before they got here. And um, this was not the only train that came, of course. There were trains that came like twice a year. And uh, some of them came, went to Loose Creek and Freeburg and Keltstown and uh, Lynn and um, they went on to California, Missouri, and uh, Stover. These children were placed all around. People would go to the railroad station and pick up their child if they had. Now, if they came from the Children's Aid Society, uh, they didn't have to have prior authorization. And when they came, they had to sign an indenture form saying that they would uh, raise the child, uh, give it a, a home, feed, clothe it, educate it according to the manner of the area they were uh, placing. Like if the if your area, most children just went to the fourth grade, that's all you were required to do. If everybody went to high school, that's what you were required to do. And then you had to uh, say that you would raise those children. Those from the foundling, you also had to say you would raise a Catholic. The yeah. other one said... Uh, from Children's Aid that you would give it a religious background. Yeah, that was one thing I noticed between the uh, two organizations there. And right. One of the things that really <laughs> helped the family get started was that with the Children's Aid Society, they didn't really care what denomination it was. If you were a Christian, they were putting you there. So a uh, Lutheran could end up with a Catholic or a Catholic end up with a Lutheran. And right. Uh -huh. A lot of people were upset about that. Right. Mm -hmm. See, when your mother was first taken in by her first family, there were other foster boys who lived in that home. Yes, uh-huh. There were two older boys. One was, I think one was 10 and one was 15, and she was three. And uh, they, she always said they were, she had no warm sisterly feelings toward them. They were not always kind to her. And uh, the parents were very good to her. And as the two boys grew up, they became bad alcoholics, and then there were real problems in the home. Okay. After she had moved out of that home and into yours, did she keep any contact with those two boys? Or? Uh, not with the two boys, but with the father she did. The, father she did. the mother had died when mom was nine or ten and uh, <clears throat> of pneumonia, I think it was. And um, But she was always close to, the, to her first foster father. And in fact, uh, when he was in his 80s, he came to, and lived with us. Huh. Mm -hmm. 
I don't really? remember it. Of course, <laughs> I was a baby, but yeah, yeah she, they were always close. That's pretty neat. See, another thing that really stood out to me in your, um, while I was researching your mom's story is that uh, in a lot of communities, the children who came in on the orphan trains, they were ostracized by the other children. They were considered outsiders. They were often yes. picked on and bullied. But yes. with your mother going to school there in Taos, there were a lot of other uh, orphan train riders, and they had that experience there to bond right. with each other. Right. Another thing unusual about the Taos area was that most of those children in Taos kept their original names, uh, if they knew what their original name was. My mother's uh, birth name was Irma Craig, and um, <laughs> and um, uh, she went by that name all the time, and most of her friends went by their birth name. Now you get around to the other little towns around, many of them went by their uh, foster family's names, especially if they didn't have a good memory of their other, of their birth family. I mean, if it had been an unhappy experience, they would be glad to take another name. And uh, did that seem to be pretty common throughout her schooling or after she, was it St. Francis down there? St. Francis Xavier. Yeah, St. Francis Xavier. Did that change when she went to the public schools or did that no. seem to be consistent? No. The people down there were very accepting. She said she never felt uh, looked down on or anything. Were many of the orphans uh, in my meetings and reunions I've been to, many of them were really, you know, uh, their children they went to school with, uh, they were told not to have anything to do with that child. She's an orphan. And they, they had a feeling that uh, the orphans maybe had bad blood. That, that was a term they used to use. They had bad blood, you know. Yeah. But Mom said, we never felt any different than anybody else. Yeah, I think she got real lucky with where she was placed. Yes. Uh-huh. Then after schooling, your mother had decided to pursue teaching? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, she only went to the eighth grade. They lived out in the country, and her foster mother, uh, that was the second foster mother, uh, she... Uh, just lived on her butter and eggs money, you know, yeah. on the farm. And she couldn't afford to send her to, to uh, Jeff City. To She would have to pay room and board to somebody if she came to Jeff City to high school. So my mom stayed out of school for a couple of years, and then she and a friend of hers decided they wanted to be school teachers. So they went and talked to the county superintendent of schools, and he told them to go back to the eighth grade for a refresher course. And then they could go up to Warrensburg, to Warrensburg Normal School, he called it, and uh, learn to be teachers. So that's what they did. They went back to the eighth grade. And that teacher, that's, that was Mr. Schultz, and he, he had a large group of children in a one-room school but he actually gave them algebra courses and such on the side because so, he knew they wanted to become a teacher. And uh, then after they did that, then they went to Warrensburg for a six-week summer course and came back here and took the state teacher's exam, and then they were teachers. <laughs> Growing up, did your mother ever hide her experiences about being on the orphan trains or... Was she always open about it, or? Yes, she was. 
Uh, we kids, when we were little, many times we would ask, you know, if we'd get bored with what we were doing or something. I can still remember going into the kitchen and mom would be cooking or baking or something. Mom, tell us stories about you when you were a little in the olden days. <laughs> she'd always kind of smile. And then she'd tell us little stories about her growing up when she was little and different things that they did. She always had a lot of friends. She was outgoing. She was a very, um, I call her very gentle, very ladylike, but a very strong person. And uh, she learned to drive a car when she was 18. That was in 1916. One of the very few women in the area that, that drove a car. This actually might be a question for you also. But <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, did either your mother or your mother ever threaten to put you on a train? Just asking because I'm a father myself. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. I always told my my girls, I said, you may get in, uh, you may make, uh, get in real trouble with us, but you're always welcome to come back home always welcome. Didn't I, Beth? Mm -hmm. I said, you may get a good fussing, but you're always <laughs> welcome to come back home. See, uh, your father had passed away in 1939. Yes. And your mother had turned down uh, receiving welfare as a widow. Yes. Uh -huh. And now, was this out of pride, or did she find any irony in the situation that welfare was one of the social programs enacted that helped put an end to the orphan trains? Or I think it was more a matter of pride. She felt like we could, and we really probably should have had help, but um, no, she said, uh, we're not that, that, uh, not that bad off. Yeah, I remembered seeing a uh, <clears throat> comment in an interview where it said something, you were like, you were poor, but according to Dwight D. Eisenhower, you weren't that poor. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> we were poor, but we didn't know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, in my research has seen that you had served as the or on the board of directors for the Orphan Train Heritage Society of America. Yes. I was wondering if you could tell me a little about that. Well, the Orphan Train Heritage Society of America is no longer in existence. They merged with an organization out in Kansas, National Orphan Train Complex. And uh, I was on the board of the Orphan Train Heritage Society. It was based down in Springdale, Arkansas. And actually through them is how I found out a lot about the orphan trains. My mother probably thought there was just one orphan train that came through, you know. She didn't, uh, she passed away before we found out a lot of this. And, um, but um, a friend of mine saw an article in the paper about this new organization down in uh, Springdale, Arkansas, and I wrote down there and they invited us to go down there. And My sister, Mitzi Vincent-Bard, and I and our husbands went down there and met the lady that started it and uh, we got active in it, started going to the reunions, and um, eventually for some reason I was asked to be on the board. <laughs> and I ended up being vice president of it for several years. They wanted me to be the president and I said nope. I'm not being the president, I'll be the vice president. <laughs> <laughs> then you 
it said that you had also hosted uh, reunions for the orphan train riders. Yes, uh huh. We, um, my husband and I, hosted it, uh, Missouri reunions uh, for five years. I think the last one was in '01, I believe, 2001, and uh, the first one we had down at the uh, uh, Knights of Columbus Hall in Taos, and uh, we took a tour of the church museum and of course uh, that was um, nice because uh, uh, there were a number of orphans had gone down there and of course there were a lot of descendants that came and uh, then after that we and we always had a little uh, reception at our house before that you remember that Beth we'd always the reenactment Carson my, my youngest is 18 and he was we did a reenactment, and he was the baby. Mm -hmm. And that was, he was born in 2000, so 2001 would be about right, because uh -huh. in the pictures, you know, he's able to hold himself up. And yeah. We reenacted the uh, the coming of the orphan train, orphans, and... Um, we were very tickled, the grandchildren, because my aunts and uncles dressed up as nuns <laughs> and as priests. And <laughs> that was comical to us, and we dressed up as, as the the parents to be, uh -huh. the adoptive parents and stuff. Yeah, and I, uh, I played the part of Mrs. Mrs. Swalen or whatever. We never could. The, the um, uh, she was a caseworker that came and checked on the children every six months or every year, and uh, we never could really read her name. It was her signature, you know. Yeah. So we called it Swalen. <laughs> I played that part, and yeah, that was. And we, we never had a huge turnout, maybe 70 people from all around the state, you know, would come. And you'd have those, um, the reenactment in several of them you had over at uh, what park? Uh, we had one of them at, a, at a, a motel, Best Western. And uh, one of them we had, that, that reenactment was for our family reunion out at McClung Park. McClung. That's, uh -huh. We had several of them out there because I would help you with them. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, when your mother had gone to her second family, did she have any siblings there? Or? She had an older sister who was 18 and mom was 10. And uh, her name was Mary. And uh, Mary was actually the reason why mom went over there to that family after Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Bame was her first foster mother after she passed away and I guess the neighbors could see that bad, things were bad at the home with these two uh, older boys that were alcoholics um, and um, Papa George had let it be known in the neighborhood maybe through the parish priest that he would let Irma go to a house a different home where there was a woman to raise her and uh, so this, the one that she ended up going to, uh, Mary, this 18-year-old girl, had always been nice to mom. And she'd, like at the parish picnics or functions, she would buy her ice cream or gave her ribbons for her hair, different things. <clears throat> and so when they asked mom where she wanted to go, she wanted to go where Mary was. <laughs> and. Um, Mary had been an only child, and she so Mom got all of Mary's old toys to play with, 
which wasn't that much, but there was a little set of dishes and a little little doll dishes, they called them. The cups were just about as big as, a little big, bigger than a thimble, you know, they were tiny dishes. And... Um, but it was more than anything she'd ever had. <clears throat> right. That was... And cool. Mary had a little had a little parasol. It was white with and blue Mary polka dots. And Mary got the sun rose and set on Grandma, and Grandma yes. saw the same of her and her stepmother. And as well. stepmother, yeah, the mother very close. And there was an uncle, uh, unmarried uncle that lived. It was actually his farm, and uh, he too. His name was John Rackers, and they were they were a good they were a happy family. Mom said she was always petted and pampered in that home. She had a room of her own, but she'd never had that before. And how do you think that your mother would feel about how the orphan trains would evolve into the foster care system that we use today? I think she probably would have thought it was okay as long as the children were well taken care of. Actually, my mother was probably in a foster home uh, sponsored through the orphanage in New York. Uh, they started that uh, when uh, a woman brought her child there and uh, to the New York Foundling and wanted to stay there herself. And they said, no, we, we don't have any facilities for, for grown-ups to stay, you know and you can't stay. So she left. She came back later in the day and she said, uh, ask again if she could stay. And they said no. And then she came back that evening and she said, if you don't let me stay, I'm gonna do away with myself because my family won't take me back. So that gave them, an, as she said, if you let me stay, I'll breastfeed my baby and one other. So that gave them an idea of how to take care of these other children because they were trying to, they called it hand feeding, yeah. bottle feeding these babies. And uh, mortality rate was real high in these orphanages. I think they said that uh, in a study that the uh, newspaper in New York did, they bragged about the New York foundling only had a mortality rate of 45%. Only 45%. And so, anyway, so they were, that gave them an idea, the, the sisters an idea, and they started a program where a poor mother could bring, uh, could come to the orphanage and take a baby home with them in their home, and they would have to be a new mother so they could breastfeed the baby. They'd keep the baby for till they were almost three. And once a month, they'd have to come back and have the baby checked by the sisters. And then they would be paid $10. Every month, they'd, they'd do that. They'd be paid $10. If the baby got sick, they had to bring it to the sisters to be doctored. And that's one of the very first foster programs that was in this in this, I don't know what they called it, foster at that time, but they did it for the poor people and these babies. And we've always and thought, the and, the, and the mothers, right? And we've always thought, once we we didn't always know that. Mom never knew that. But once I read that and we got to thinking about it, Mom was such a gentle, loving person. 
she was well taken care of. Yeah, that's what we've always thought, that whoever took care of her when she was real little was a kind, loving person. Sorry. Oh, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> was there anything else about your mother that you'd like to discuss? Or? Well, <clears throat> she was a, she was very, like I said, very strong. Dad, Dad died when I was a baby, and I was the youngest of eight. My oldest brother was was uh, 15, and uh, there were eight of us. We lived on a Missouri River bottom farm that flooded every other year, sometimes every year. And so she did, she had a hard life, but she was a... Uh, no electricity, no running water. No, no electricity, no running water. She was a very faith-filled person. And... Uh, very strong and yet very gentle and loving. And rather a character. Yeah. <laughs> very soft-spoken, had a good sense of humor. Uh-huh. Uh, had a wonderful soft laugh that uh, if she got tickled, she got tickled like the rest of us. Uh-huh. And, uh... But if, if you talked about the hard times that we had, I remember her saying several times, I don't remember that it was so hard. And I thought, Mom, hey, you just don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she had fifty-two grandchildren. Fifty-two grandchildren. Yeah. That little orphan. Uh-huh. She that <laughs> she was another thing she said. <laughs> she said I didn't have I I didn't ha I didn't have a family then, but now I've got a family. And she said, "There's nothing I like better than getting to better together with the family." And her her. She was adopted more than one, twice, I always felt like, because Grandpa's family loved her dearly. Yes. Uh-huh. That, that when she married into the Sneeders family, she was a part of it, mm-hmm. whether she liked it or not. That <laughs> she was, her dearest friends were her sister-in-laws and, yes. and his <laughs> brothers. And, and when he died, they were crushed and they helped them out, helped the family out. Mm-hmm. A lot. They they helped move us their... out during the floods. <laughs> yeah, and then when we move out during the floods, we went back and stayed down with met with Mary and John on the farm. Huh. We went. Uh, Adeline, her foster mother, had passed away by that time. She passed away after Mom was married, maybe four years or something, five years. And uh, but we would go down and stay with Mary and John and them, and. Uh, <clears throat> Then John passed away, but Mary, uh, we've talked about that so often, my sisters and I. You know, there'd be five or six of us kids who moved in down there on her. She had no electricity or running water. She was living and down had there. And no children, never, and never married. Never married, never had children. She never gave us any inkling that she wasn't happy to see us and happy that we moved in. And we'd go down there and stay with her, you know, for two, three weeks, whatever it took till we could go back to our farm. And when they'd go back to the farm, I was the youngest, so I don't remember ever, I didn't ever have to help, but the older ones had to help. Can you imagine cleaning up a house after it's been flooded by the muddy Missouri River? That all had to be done every time. Right down there next to the river at Cold Junction Bottoms, where Mm -hmm. the foundation stood for many years. Yeah. 
have been consumed. And one of the articles there about your mother about the floods and all the uh, the scent of Lysol. <laughs> yes, uh, that's what. Yeah, Bleach when we moved back in, I remember the smell of Lysol. Yeah. So, uh, anyway. Well, that was really all that I had. So. <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about yeah, it. Yeah. Well. Enjoyed talking to you, Chris. Enjoyed we, meeting you, Chris. She, she passed away in '89, and and we still miss her. Mm -hmm. The walking into her house, her little house, always to me smelled like combination of fried chicken and her wonderful pork chops that she fried, <laughs> yeah. and or, some, or her apple pie, or whatever. some sort of pie. <clears throat> and I remember making. Love cooking cookies in her kitchen and um, New Year's cakes mm -hmm. at Christmas and sitting around her kitchen table or that little glider um, love seat that she had in her living room that uh -huh. uh, and that at times all of us grandkids would be in this little thousand nine hundred square foot house. Well, we couldn't all be in it. We'd be in the basement, unfinished basement, or in the yard. But mm -hmm. her neighborhood knew when the family was in because <laughs> there were so many kids there. Mm -hmm. And she never stressed about it. She was overjoyed to see us. And mm -hmm. she, she loved to garden her flowers. And, and um, it was always fun to have her around. She'd go on vacations with us. You know, in an under-conditioned station wagon with four little girls. <laughs> and we were not the only family that took her on vacation. So she was a trooper. She, and she it, loved to travel. Yeah, and she enjoyed doing it with us. And, and she was just... She never lived to go to any of the orphan train reunions. She, uh, she was, when they first started having them up in Trenton, Missouri, Evelyn Trickle was one that started having the Missouri reunions. And uh, she invited mom, but mom's health was already getting bad. And she was 89 years old, you know, too. Yeah. But she, she was a very intelligent person, too. She, uh, she, she her typewriter. Mm -hmm. She used but the she, old mechanical, yeah. what you think of, you know, in the 20s or whatever. And she typed a lot of her own memoirs. Yes. And, uh, and if she just find an interesting article in a magazine, she'd type it. Just she just liked to type Something it. about it, and, or and or she write notes and margins, you know, that type of thing. And and her cookbook always had all sorts of recipes written around. Well, add this; it'll make it better, basically. <laughs> but she was she was a sweet, wonderful woman, and mm -hmm. she went to work. Um, uh, later in life uh, for the state. She worked at Employment Security and she loved that, loved it. You know, it was a whole new life for her. She got a, out she of the house. and had new friends out of that, Yes. Uh, and she loved her quilting, quilting circle at St. Joe. And she liked to play, loved to play cards. And she, so later in life, she became like a liberated woman she got out of the house you know <laughs> you'd see her driving down the road and she was so little you'd just see this little head you know <laughs> looking between the steering wheel and the dashboard you know 
she was independent woman. Mm-hmm. Forced to be, but she. She didn't have a choice. Yeah. She was always that but forced she always, to be independent. She was very resilient. I know you're not recording this anymore, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, I, I haven't hit stop yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> he can edit all that. Yeah. <laughs> she was, what I say about Mama, she was so resilient. That's really all I had for you. I'd like to thank you all for taking the time to talk to me. We've worn your ears out. Oh, no. I almost feel like I'm part of the family now. (laughs) Well, next reunion, we'll invite you. Copyright 2019, the Show Me Podcast. No part of this program may be duplicated or reproduced without the written consent of the Show Me Podcast. Music used in this program is Creative Commons Media. Missouri, show me, show me, show me. I am from Missouri, show me, show me. I am from Missouri, you have got me.